Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. It seems like you can't have a conversation with anyone anymore without people getting heated, without names being called. We're in the cancel culture. Yet there are a lot of issues that we ought to be talking about, particularly as Christians. We ought to be talking about depression. We ought to be talking about mental illness. We ought to be talking about issues like substance abuse, pornography, premarital sex, divorce and remarriage, the whole LGBTQ issue. We need to be talking about that. We ought to talk about abortion. We ought to talk about politics. You say, I'm tired of politics. Yes, so am I. But it's something we still need to be skilled at talking about. We have to talk about issues like racism as well. How do we do that in an effective way, especially in this cancel culture? How do we have challenging conversations both inside and outside the church in a way that can actually move the ball forward? And for that, my friend Jason Jimenez is going is to help us do that. He has a brand new book called Challenging Conversations, a practical guide to discuss controversial topics in the church, and I might say even outside the church as well. Uh, Jason, I've known for many years, he's actually the founder of Stand Strong Ministries. He teaches at Summit uh, as well as I do and many other people. He, he does a lot of biblical worldview training. He's spoken to thousands of people. His ministry is called StandStrongMinistries.org, StandStrongMinistries.org. He also happens to be here in Charlotte, North Carolina with me. Jason, how are you? Hey, Frank, good to see you, buddy. Thanks for having me. You too. And we're actually seeing one another on Zoom as we're doing this. Uh, yeah, and, you look pretty, by the way. Yeah, and so do you, man. You're just, you're, you're looking really sharp today. I like that V-neck. Anyway, nobody <laughs> can see that but us. But That's anyway. right. That's Jason, why track. did you write this book? Uh, you know, you've written several other books. It's not your first book. Why did you decide to write this book, Challenging Conversations? Well, you know, the truth is, uh, Frank, as you're just saying in the opening through the years as a pastor, and of course you and I have done apologetics for many years, you way longer, you're a lot older, you're the old man, I'm the young man here, but, right. uh, we, we, we Watch constantly see things worsening. We see uh-huh. Christians who are complaining, or we see Christians who bow out in conversations, they get intimidated, they get overwhelmed or they start panicking. And it seems like now, the longer I've been doing this in the church world, you see so many more Christians who just sidestep the issues. They don't want to, they beat around the bush and these are gospel opportunities. And not to mention that these are opportunities where you can, you can build a relationship with people. And I just continue to see when things go south in a conversation, it's a controversial issue. They don't agree with them. They end the conversation, but they also end the relationship. And so again, for the past few years, you know, I've been praying, noticing it a lot more, uh, studying different things, talking to different people. And this book developed as a result of it because I just didn't want to address these these uh, nine controversial issues. I also wanted to address them in the context of trying to help Christians build relationships with other people. Well, you do it quite well in this book, and you're covering some very challenging topics I mentioned them at the top of the program. They're all in this book from mental illness to pornography to LGBTQ to racism to politics to 
drug abuse, substance abuse. It's it's all in here. Marriage and, and remarriage and divorce. It's all in this new book, Challenging Conversations. Jason Jimenez, by the way, you, sp- you spell Jimenez, J-I-M-E-N-E-Z. And uh, Jason, let's talk a little bit uh, about a topic nobody wants to talk about. Uh, church rarely talks about it, yet it's a big issue, and that is mental illness. I think one of the first chapters you have in this book is the issue of mental illness. And I remember Rick Warren saying this when his son was sick and his son ultimately committed suicide, obviously a terrible tragedy. He said, he said, why is it that if you say I have a bad knee or a bad heart, nobody says, well, you should be ashamed of that, right? There's no shame attached to it. But it's almost like if you if you have something wrong with your mind or something organically wrong with your brain, people somehow assign shame to that. Why do you think that is? I think in one is because people, they just don't know. And the other thing is I do think that the church has done a disservice for the most part. Now you and I know great pastors and churches that have counseling centers and they may talk about it regularly and provide resources for families. But the fact remains, uh, Frank, that, and I do address it in the chapter, particularly, I call it the biggest cover up. There, you know, one out of four people suffer with some form of mental illness. Mm. And there are many more people, especially during COVID now, all these months later, right, that we're seeing clinical depression on the rise. All the major networks are reporting the historic rise of depression that's growing. And I think that oftentimes the church world, when they get into mental issues, it's far more difficult than if somebody has cancer. Because they're troubled by the fact that if somebody has a mental problem, they're disturbed. Maybe they're not safe. Maybe they're they're psychotic. You know, maybe they're going to be violent or say outlandish things. And again, they're awkward. They're uncomfortable. And so there is a stigma that is attached to depression and mental illness. And so I wanted to bring that to people's attention because not only are there people suffering from it, but there are also family members who have to deal with it and they need support. And that's why we need to talk about it. Yeah, you quote C.S. Lewis right in the opening line of the chapter from The Problem of Pain. Lewis said, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It's easier to say, my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. That's from C.S. Lewis. Now, let's talk a little bit about depression, because I think a lot of people are depressed in America right now, not just because of covid but because of the election, not because their guy necessarily won or lost, but just because of the state of our country right now and the uncertainty moving forward, because I don't care how this election turns out, it's not going to be pretty, right? I mean, if Biden wins and uh, there's uh, people are going to be upset. If Trump wins, people are going to be upset. It, you know, it, either way, people are going to be upset. Uh, and moving forward, we're worried about our elections going to be fair. Is there going to be fraud or not? They're, they're worried about safety in the streets now. Uh, let's talk then about depression. Have biblical characters been depressed? Yeah, see, that's a great question. And that's something that we address in the book too, because ultimately, Frank, we know everybody, listen, everybody listening will at one point in their life, matter of fact, several times in your life, will suffer from depression. So no one in this world is immune from depression. Just because somebody may be diagnosed with a clinical depression and they have a name and they take medication doesn't mean that other people are immune from it. 
So when we do look at the pages of scripture, it's significant to point out that individuals like Job, King David, Jeremiah, Hannah, Elijah, I mean, the list goes on, but you see moments in time in scripture where people were deeply distressed. Now, I want to make note that in the context of scripture, particularly when you're looking at the Hebrew language, even into the New Testament with certain uh, instances where you see the, uh, an overwhelming expression of emotion that Jesus faced in the garden, for example, where Paul was mentioning a lot of the perplexities and the distress and the persecution that he underwent in, in different passages in 2 Corinthians 6 and chapter 11. You're not going to see medical terms that we use today, but that does not mean that it's absent through scripture. I mean, case in point, when you look at Psalm 13 that I'm reminded of that I I, th- I put in the book, when you think about David and his depression, he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Notice he says this, how long must I take counsel in my soul? That actually is a deep expression, Frank, that actually I also refer to with Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, where he talks about the unhappiness of the mind. There is this constant grief or sorrow or darkness that plagues an individual. So there is a lot of accounts in scripture where you see this depressive state. And I think Christians today in modern times, they have to understand that. And as again, I answer the question, can you be a Christian yet suffer from mental illness or depression? And and it's an emphatic, yes, you can. Now, every human being is going to be different as to why that is. And that's what we also then explore. Once we recognize that godly people do suffer from depression. Now, the next step is how can we help them through it? Well, how can we help them through it? That's going to be our topic as soon as we come back from the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. My guest is Jason Jimenez, his brand new book, Challenging Conversations, is now available. You ought to get it. It's a great book covering many of these issues, and we'll talk more right after the break. Don't go anywhere. Friends, can you help me with something? Can you go up to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a five-star review? Why? It will help more people see this podcast and therefore then hear it. So if you could help us out there, I'd greatly appreciate it. Some of you may be asking yourself, when was this program recorded? Because you just mentioned you don't know who's going to win the election. No, we're recording this on Friday, November 13th. And the reason I said we don't know who's going to win the election is because there are credible claims, it seems, 234 pages of of affidavits, people under oath saying they saw voter fraud and you know, we don't know how this is going to turn out. Right now, Biden is in the driver's seat, it seems, given the number of uh, states he apparently has won. But we don't know if it's going to get overturned. Probably won't, but we don't know yet. That's why I'm saying we're not exactly sure who ultimately is going to win. If the Dominion voting machine issue is really an issue, apparently it it moved some votes from uh Trump to Biden in one of the counties in Michigan and actually changed a local election. If that's more widespread, that could change the results of the election. But either way, there's stress uh, for the American people, regardless of how it ultimately turns out. And people are depressed. And there's one thing that will compound your depression, and that is isolation. Isolation will compound your depression. And what is going on right now with COVID? as cases start to increase, apparently, is that there will be probably a call for more isolation and lockdowns. And uh, I want to, before we get back to Jason Jimenez here, I want to point everybody to an article written on the National Review 
by my friend Jay Richards, along with Doug Axe and William Briggs. It's October 4th. It's on the National Review. If you Google lockdown Richards, you'll find it. It's on the National Review. And it's from his their new book called Price of Panic. And, you know, we had Jay on uh, a few weeks ago talking about this. But this article just deals with lockdowns. And from their analysis, the lockdowns probably did not work. Lockdowns don't work. What you have to do is isolate the vulnerable and get everybody back out in the workforce, according to them. But go read the article because your governor is probably going to try and lock something down. And you might want to say, hey, Gov, the evidence shows lockdowns don't work. Other things work like isolating the vulnerable, but not the entire nation. And one of the ways you can have a conversation like this is to use some of the uh, the conversation ideas that Jason Jimenez has in his new book, Challenging Conversations. Before the break, Jason, we were talking about mental illness, and we got to the point that where we said, look, biblical characters were depressed, biblical characters had issues, and we want to now talk about how we can help one another if we are depressed or do have mental illness. So why don't we pick it up right there? What what are give give us some ideas, some ideas you have in the book, Challenging Conversations where we can help one another through these deep, dark, depressing times. Yeah. So the thing, Frank, that people need to understand, this is what we try to help a lot of people in the church is that everybody who does have mental illness, we need to treat it like it's cancer, just the same way. Okay. And that's going to vary person to person. Okay. So we can't just label one person. Oh, my grandmother had depression or she you had a form of mental illness. And then my best friend does, and I'm, I'm going to treat that person the same way. That's not usually the case. So it will vary person to person. And we got to also understand that there could be levels of emotion or sensational anxieties that people face. that are going to be a lot different, could be brought on by a traumatic experience. There could have been a spiritual issue, could have been demonic oppression that happens in, in that person's life, maybe the wrong doses of drugs, a relational problem, an issue. So when we understand that again, no, we're not experts here. We're not asking people to be experts out there. There are people that we know that we can go to that are clinical psychologists or professional Christian counselors that can, can help people. And there could be a form of treatment or therapy, just like rehabilitation that can help them work through their issues mentally. But we have to understand that when the, when the mental mind is sick, it's going to affect body and soul. So we are multi-part human beings. So depression doesn't just affect one aspect of the of the human body it affects all aspects of the human body so we have to understand that so the best thing to do if you have a friend who is suffering with something and you're just not certain what it is i tell people to be a pick-me-up be someone who's willing to be there for them again you don't have to be a professional counselor but you're there to aid them to assist them to mourn with them to cry with them to celebrate with them to take them, like you just said, if they've been isolating themselves, if they're not returning your calls, if you're not hearing from them, you got to go after them. And a lot of times today, people feel like, well, I don't want to invade their privacy. If you know people are suffering mentally, you have to be there to bring sunshine in their life. Yeah, you and I both had the experience with our friend Mike Adams, and we tried to do as best we could to help him. Uh, and uh, we would obviously try and be with him, invite him to our home, try and go to his house. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes mm -hmm. it does. In fact, you don't know how many suicides you've prevented by actually going to be with people because obviously it's a counterfactual situation. If you hadn't have gone, maybe they would have committed suicide or done something to harm themselves or others. 
So we, we don't know how many people we actually save by actually reaching out to people. What are some of the questions you can ask people, Jason, who are experiencing depression or mental illness to, to try and help them or try, try and try and help you help them? Yeah, I mean, the, again, we don't want to say to people, especially if it has to do with some mental things. And, and again, we have to also be clear on this, Frank, that a lot of times when we befriend someone or you've known someone for a long time, but they were just something off, but you've never you know, asked them specifically like, hey, by chance, do you have, you know, you don't want to say mental problems or what's wrong with you. You want to say, hey, I've noticed that there are days where you're having good day and there's days you're not having such a good day is this something that maybe I did? Did I offend you in some way? Sometimes what you want to do, if you kind of notice there's something beyond normal, if you will, um, you don't want to say that they're abnormal, right? But you're noticing something off. You want to be able to put the pressure on you to say, did I cause something for you to feel a certain way? And when they say, well, no, no, it's not you, Frank. You didn't, you didn't do anything. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's me. You say, well, what, what do you mean by that? says, well, I haven't really told anybody, again, because I talk about in the book, most people, again, that have a, a substance abuse problem or a mental issue, um, they feel marginalized. And again, I'm addressing this book primarily to people in the church, because again, we, we don't really do a good job talking about these kind of things. We kind of mm -hmm. brush it aside because we get too embarrassed. And you will find out that they've been suffering with this for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so by just checking on them and asking a question that's not like harsh or judgmental, but just saying, Hey, did I do something to cause you to feel a certain way? Or you're not responding to me just like we were doing with Mike. There'd be times where as he was suffering through depression and it was getting worse, he would check out sometimes. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is saying, did somebody offend you? Did somebody hurt you? But the sad reality is with people out there, uh, Frank also, they are, they go undiagnosed. They live life being undiagnosed. And, and that's a sad reality. I lost a brother before we lost Mike, my second oldest brother who was suffering from cancer. And he just mentally was just exhausted with all the stuff he was going through. And the sad reality is when you look back, he, he passed away this past year there before COVID, he lived his life undiagnosed and he had major mental problems. So you're right. There's going to be times where you can ask a simple question and they're going to respond or they don't know how to answer, but then you can help them find the answer. And there's going to be other times they're not going to know how to respond and they're not going to get back to you. But we just have to trust that God has placed you in that person's life to help them as best you can. Yeah, you write in the book uh, from Proverbs 18, 14, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear a crushed spirit who can bear. And Paul, of course, says in Galatians six, share each other's burdens. Mm -hmm. In this way, you can obey the law of Christ. So we, we, we have to share each other's burdens as, as difficult as it might be for you to be a counselor to somebody or somebody who can at least share uh, fellowship with and talk through some of these issues. As, as draining as that might be on you, that's what we're called to do. We're called to actually share one another's burdens. And if I may, Frank, too, yeah. the, the, there's a difference between someone being helpless and someone being hopeless. So at times when you're looking at a friend, let's say in your life right now, they may feel lonely and they're not able to maybe get through something. They're struggling like a lot of young people are struggling in college right now and they need help and they feel yeah. helpless like they're not going to pass this semester. And then the difference is like our buddy Mike, he was hopeless. Like no matter what went down, no matter who was there, no matter how much love he received, it was over. He just did not feel like he he could contain and live this life any longer. And so there's going to be degrees of that. And so that's why asking just key questions. And I talk about them in the book about 
How do you feel uh, in your life right now? What kind of stress are you under? Are you sleeping? Those are Mm -hmm. just, again, they may seem like general questions, but just like when you go see a primary doctor and they're asking like these, these same kind of questions. And if you're getting a negative response most of the time, that's when you start encouraging them as a, as a loving brother or sister in Christ would do to say, hey, let's get help together. I will be right. there with you to get you the help that you need. You also quote Proverbs 23, 7 in the book, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. Now, that's obviously false, Jason, because if if you are what you think, most men would be women. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay but that, well, you speak for yourself. I don't know if that's true for you. That, but. That's, not the, that's not the sense in which this is talking about. It is true no. that your mind and what you think about can feed how you feel, quite obviously. That's why, by the way, uh, one of the things you can't allow yourself to be dragged down by is social media. You know, if social media is causing you angst and anxiety, get off it. It's not worth it. And by the way, if you, if, if, if you think you have to answer everybody who asks you a question on social media or po- puts a post into your post, you don't, okay? That just creates anxiety for you. It's it it's it's and look, very few people on social media are persuading others anyway. Okay, your Facebook post is probably not going to change many minds. It may affirm, you know, some people in their current opinion, but it's probably not going to change many minds. So don't spool up over it. You know, you can you can you can take a break and and it'll be okay. Because you also and, and by the way, I think that four. you, you can you can Frank pick up some ideas when you or some some signs on social media with certain people that are acting mm. a certain way. And yeah. instead of getting defensive, look at some of the posts that your family members or your friends are putting out there and ask yourself, are they crying out for help? Do they need attention and how can sure. I resolve that with them? Not on social media, but personally. And you can't you can't necessarily condemn people for feelings they have. Who knows why they have the feelings? You might even say to them, look, I understand why you have those feelings, especially when we're talking about politics, right? Uh, it's, it's red hot talking about these issues. And it's okay to say to somebody, even if you vehemently disagree with them politically, you can say, look, I can understand that perspective. Okay, I, I can understand why you feel that way. All right, you can say that, even if you disagree with them. And you have a lot more in common with people then you then you don't have in common with them politically. So you need to lower the temperature on that. We're Christians. And while we have to fight for truth, we ought not lose people on our fight for truth unnecessarily. Obviously, some people will never agree with you. We get that. But you don't want to unnecessarily alienate people, unnecessarily alienate people. We talked about that, by the way, in the last podcast. And uh, there's so much more in the book, Jason, we're going to get to right after the break. Again, the book is called Challenging Conversations, a practical guide to discuss controversial topics in the church. And Jason Jimenez, my guest, is going after the tough ones, man. He's not picking the easy issues. He's going after mental illness, pornography, premarital sex, LGBTQ issues, racism. He's covering it all in this book. So I highly recommend you pick it up. It's brand new. It's only been out a couple of weeks. Last name is spelled J-I-M-E-N-E-Z, Jason Jimenez, and he's my guest, Stan Strong Ministries. We're back in just a couple of minutes. I'm Frank Turek. Do not go anywhere. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, 
don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. This Sunday, November 15th, Lord willing, I'll be out at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills with the great Jack Hibbs. I'll be speaking at all three services. As you know, Jack is one of the few churches in California open. Thousands of people are going there. I'm going to be talking about how can Jesus be the only way? We'll be talking about that this Sunday. So if you're anywhere near Southern California, love to see you out there. There's going to be thousands there because, as I say, <laughs> many other churches are closed and Jack does such a wonderful job. And uh, it'll also be live streamed. So if you want to tune in, you can. We're talking to my friend, uh, Jason Jimenez, his brand new book, Challenging Conversations, which is a practical guide to discuss controversial topics in the church. I want to spend just a couple more minutes on mental illness and move on to another topic. I want to ask our audience, I'm going to read some names to you, and I want to ask you what is in what what do these people have in common other than they're all prominent Christians? C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa, John Wesley, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, J.P. Moreland, John Piper. They all have in common that they've all been depressed, even though they know the truth about Christianity. So do not feel shame because you feel depressed. But I want to ask Jason, Jason, if there's one piece of advice you could give people, I know there's a lot more in the book, but just people listening right now, if there's one piece of advice you could give them if, if, that if they feel depressed or if they know somebody who does, what would that piece of advice be? What would you say to them? Well, so the person that is in depression and they may, again, may not be diagnosed, maybe have not seen a professional health uh, you know, therapist is to talk to God, make sure at least that they're talking to God, because you and I believe strongly, Frank, that God's spirit will, will impact that person. God will speak to that person. He'll lead them to truth as Philippians four, eight says that you set your mind on truthful things that are honorable for the friend who is looking at a family member or a dear friend of theirs. And there is something way off, or they just found out, or they've known for, for quite some time, but have never acted on it that they have a, a loved one who is suffering with depression, what they need to do is they need a game plan and they need to not waste any time and they need to go to that friend and one, apologize for not taking it that serious because remember, this is like cancer in the brain or as Charles Spurgeon referred to as a sick brain and they need to assist that person say, how can I help you? I am here for you. How can I help? And that's it. It's simply asking that person how you can be a help to them. Look, friends, we're part of a fallen world. Uh, we all have things that don't work properly. Uh, we're all broken. So there's no shame in saying, well, right now my mind is not working well. Just like it would be no shame if you said my knee's not working well. Okay, just reach out for help. Reach out to somebody. Don't be isolated. That's the worst thing you can do. Now, again, there's a lot more in the book, Challenging Conversations on this. Jason, you also can have some challenging conversations about something that many in the church don't want to talk about. In fact, they want to wink at, wink at, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about some sexual issues like, oh, well, we know, we know that homosexuality is wrong, but they won't really talk much about premarital sex among heterosexuals even. And you have an entire chapter on this. There's very few times in the scripture, it says 
this is God's will for your life. Mm-hmm. I think there's maybe five or six times. One of the times is Paul to the church of Thessalonians. The first letter he writes, he writes this, and he, this heads off your chapter. For it is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Let me start by saying, this is the will of God, according to the scriptures here. Jason, does Jesus address this issue? Yeah, I mean, Jesus does. And, and you know what's important? Why we need to be talking about this is because it's important to God. God has a certain order, Frank, as you and I know, in between a man and a woman and with the sexual organs that he's given each uh, you know, sex part, you know, partner to have, to bring pleasure. Sex is a, is a gift from God for a monogamous relationship between a husband and wife to have. So when it comes to the pages in scripture, particularly, as you mentioned in, with Jesus, and I talk about it in, in about how we're to understand issues about premarital sex or sin itself outside the marriage. And Jesus does mention to porneia and it's, and that's the Greek word where we get the word porn, obviously pornography, but in scripture, Jesus talks about fornication. He talks about idolatry. You know, like I said, there's a form of of pornography. And he also addresses issues when he was talking about a man and woman that he is indirectly, obviously, talking against uh, homosexuality. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 deals with these things. Matter of fact, he says, flee from sexual morality. Uh, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But catch this. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body because as you rightly pointed out in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will for you to be set apart for him because in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 19 to 20, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And notice, uh, Frank, that premarital sex, sexual morality, sex outside of marriage is a sin against your own body. So that is a different type of sexual sin than other types of sins. And yet, because there's a lot of cohabitation that is taking place in the world today, again, in the church and pastorally, I've seen it through the years from young people, you know, before they get married and people who've been married, they got divorced, whether it was for biblical grounds or not having sex before they get married. And that's why I address what I refer to in the book about individualized sexual ethics, because today people say, hey, look, I'm in love with this person. It's my body. It's my choice. And if you love someone, you have sex with that person. And again, that's what you can freely choose to do. And so I I wanted to talk about it because God's will is for us to be set apart. And we have to help people who are struggling through it. They may not know how to do that. I've talked to a lot of young people, Frank, like you've done, millennials and Gen Z, and especially a lot of our great students at Summit. They don't even know what the scripture says about this stuff. And they're thinking, you like someone, you have sex, you test it out to see if you like the sexual partner and maybe, you know, you romantically fall in love as a result or you are romantically in love with them and you can have sex with them. And they don't know where the script, what the scripture says about it. That's why we need to be talking about it. God made sex to be a good thing. And we see in our culture, as always, we distort it. We've idolized it. We've, you know, we just, we've made a mess of it. And we don't want to talk about it now because it becomes the norm. Mm. Yeah, and you quote C.S. Lewis, who in his classic book, Mere Christianity, says this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union, which was intended to go along with it and make up the total union. In other words, it's a relationship is not just about sex, it's about so much more. And, and I understand why people say, well, it's my body, I could do what I want. But if you're, if you're saying to somebody, um, 
I'll have sex with you, but I won't commit, commit to you. I'll have sex with you. I love you, but I won't commit to you. You're lying. You're lying because you don't really love that person if you, if you won't commit to that person. And I think this is what Lewis is saying here. He's saying it's much more than just the physical act. There's so much more that goes with it. Yeah, there is a oneness that is, that is going. That's why, again, the Bible says it's a, it's a sin against the body. And so when you become one flesh with someone outside of marriage, you're sinning against God, you're sinning against your own body, and you're sinning against that person, okay? That's heavy stuff, Frank. And I have counseled many people through the years that feel like they're damaged goods as a result of it, or God can't love them, or they can't get married because of what they've done in the past. You and I believe that God is forgiving, but that person has to be willing and able to confess their sins, no matter what it is. And the other thing that people, we have to point out is the difference between what love is and what lust is. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when you're having sex with multiple partners, you're taking, there's a level of impatience that goes on there. You're using them. There may be greed. You're stripping them of integrity, of, of loyalty before God, of their holiness, purity. It, it's about sex. It's not about sacrifice. You can endanger the person. Love, as we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is, a, which is a reflection of who Christ is. It's an unconditional love. Love is about giving and sacrifice and valuing that person and being generous and showing and demonstrating self-control. And so I do believe that you and I know, Frank, that when we engage this type of topic, we are sexual creatures, but like going back to C.S. Lewis, we don't die because we don't have sex, right? So that may have a desire and need in your life, but not to the point where if you don't have it, you're going to die. And so what we have to help people is not just show them restraint, but show them how they can live for God with these desires, with these, these sexual desires that they have, but show them that it is possible. Otherwise, why would the Bible tell you to, to refrain? You know, you see Joseph. He fled Potiphar's wife. And you know what? When you look at the original in Hebrew there, it's saying that if he stayed around, he probably would have would have went to bed with her. So he identified that there was a sexual desire, but that was not honorable to God because he says, I'm not going to sin against God. So his love for God was greater than having sex with a woman. And that's what we're trying to help, especially this young generation do without them, you know, um, ignoring what the Bible says, but bringing the Bible in there and, and not thinking that we're judging them because we refer to a passage of scripture that says your sanctification matters to God. Yeah, sex is not just physical, as we've talked about on this program before. If it was physical, why would it be worse if somebody rapes you than if somebody just physically assaults you? Because mm-hmm. it's not just physical. Why, why is it? Why, why is it? Why are you upset if you're married to somebody and they have sex with somebody else? You don't go, oh, that's just physical. That was like them going for a workout, right? You say, no, there's so much more than just the physical aspect of having sex. There's there's emotional, there's spiritual, there's obviously biological, there's a psychological. There's so much more to the sex act than just the physical And uh, yet people want to separate the two. And we know in our hearts, it's not separate. Now, I want to go back to what you said earlier. A lot of people, Jason, will say, well, Jesus never talked about these things as if that makes it seem like he was for these things. But he did talk about them when he used the term sexual immorality. What kind of sex did he did he have in mind when he said it's not what comes out of a man or what goes into a man that makes him unclean It's what comes out of a man. And he said, sexual morality, theft, idolatry, all these things out of the evil heart. What does the term sexual immorality mean in that context? 
So like I was saying before, it's the Greek word porneia. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not just a sexual act. It's not where we turn pornography, but it also has to deal with idolatry. It has to deal with defilement. It has to deal with uncleanliness. So in context, Jesus is not just talking about the act itself, but being pure before God because there's a standard. So when you throw the standard out, i.e. God, then you can get away with whatever. And to your point earlier, and again, in that passage, by the way, Jesus was referring to the very beginning, to the order and design that God put in, in the garden between a man and a woman. It was a beautiful thing, right? They were naked. They can have sex. They can enjoy life together. And of course, it all went to hell in handbasket. And, and as a result of that, we do see this alternative sexual ethic. And notice the key where they apply, not, not what I'm applying. They're referring to a sexualized ethic because like you said, they do identify that expressing this erotic romantic love together and getting going to bed now again people go to bed for different reasons frank i don't know if you know that but you know people go to bed for different reasons right but when they do have that sexual act it is something special yeah. right it right, is we're gonna come back special. right after hey. the break don't go anywhere uh jason hold the thought because okay. we're coming up to a hard break you're listening to i don't have enough faith to be an atheist with frank turk my guest is jason Jimenez. challenging conversations is the new book pick it up there's a lot more in the book than we can cover here on the radio back in two Friends, Frank Turek here. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. So if you like what you hear here, would you consider donating to crossexamined.org? 100% of your donations go to ministry. 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. So if you can help us out, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you're low on the FM dial looking for National Public Radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're never going to hear this on NPR, that's for sure, despite the fact it's supposed to be public. We're talking about challenging conversations. Jason Jimenez's new book, A Practical Guide to Discuss Controversial Topics in the Church. We were just talking about sexual immorality, and we got cut off there. So let's just close the loop on that, Jason. Sexual immorality to Jesus meant what What kind of sexual sexual activity was he saying is immoral? He's saying anything outside of what God, what God designed between a man and woman in marriage is immoral. So anything outside a monogamous relationship between a husband and wife is immoral. That's what Jesus was referring to. And that's the point because there's a standard and that's the ultimate standard. So anything that's contrary or as, as the revolution today likes to point out, and it's an alternative lifestyle, right? Choices. Mm -hmm. And they define their own ethic. No, According to Jesus, anything outside of a marriage between a man and woman is sexually immoral. Look, if you're a Christian, you should be following Jesus, right? There are people out there calling themselves progressive Christians. And we've talked about this with Elisa Childers on the program. Her new book, Another Gospel, deals with that. And almost every single time I hear somebody who, say, goes from Orthodox Christianity, meaning historical Christianity, to progressive so-called Christianity, Jason, it almost always, 99 times out of 10, as our friend Richard Howe would say, 99 times out of 10, sexuality is always the reason. They're always saying, well, I don't like Jesus's sexual ethic. I don't like Jesus's ethic with regard to sexuality or the apostles uh, sexual. I don't like that. Okay, well, fine. You don't like it. Don't call yourself a Christian. Then if you're going to call yourself a Christian, follow Jesus, right? If you're not going to follow Jesus, call yourself something else. All right. Yeah, because now, yeah, because you, the reality is Jesus's teachings are not up for debate. Yeah, no, it's it's the, and I know people are trying to say they're 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 ambiguous. They're not. They're very clear. 
and in fact, from a natural law perspective, they're clear as well, I think. Uh, but let's go on to another topic because we could talk about this issue and for the remainder of the segment. But I want to get a couple other issues in, at least one more, Jason. And uh, that is the issue of racism, because it's quite an issue, quite obviously, in our country today. We've had some programs on this uh, earlier in the year, but you have an entire chapter in the book, Challenging Conversations on Racism. Why do you think it seems like everybody is calling everybody else racist today? Where is that coming from? <laughs> well, again, at the heart of racism is, I believe, is demonic. I mean, from the very beginning, Satan wants to try to divvy up people and classify them to be different. And, and again, when you look at racism as itself, it's, there's a domination. It's someone who thinks better of themselves, more superior than the other person. And they put them in a lower class because they're inferior. So again, whether it be for their education, their upbringing, socioeconomic, you know, but mainly we know in the Western world, Frank, because racism has plagued society and different civilizations throughout history, but mainly in the Western world today where we live, it's about color. And so nowadays, when the cancel culture, as you mentioned earlier, uh, there's so many racial issues here or, you know, there's so much racial microaggressions and, the, you know, the statements like white privilege and you have movements today, today like BLM. And if you do not align, and again, you've talked about this and a lot of people are talking about, you know, critical race theory issues and intersectionality issues. And I touched on these issues in my political chapter and also my racism chapter. And that's what people do. It's, a, it's just the world that we live in with, with identity politics. If you are not like that person, then, then you are racist. And so if you're white, like you are, Frank, you're a racist automatically in the culture we, we live today because you've had certain privileges in life that you've taken for granted and you've been given a lot more than people who are different uh, ethnic group or race or color. And so the moment people step outside the door and they, someone looks at them a different way, and they look at, they assume, oh, it's because of the color of my skin. That person's a racist automatically. Because I, what at the heart of it, as I said, racism is, is demonic. At the heart of it too, Frank, is one, there's a weak argument there. It's an attack issue. It, and it's, but it's also about trumping people. It's, it's dominating people. It's making them feel like they're the problem in order to advance their agenda. And so that is that is way out of control right now to where there's no conversation whatsoever about racial reconciliation, just hatred. So bottom line is this, whether about white supremacist stuff, Antifa stuff, riots in the streets, people putting their fists out, you know, saying, you got to look at me, you got to love me, you got to accept me, you know, you got to give me a job because, because my ancestors were oppressed, whatever. There's a lot of hatred there. There's a lot of unforgiveness there. And I believe that is at the heart of why we're seeing so much of this talk about racism. So how can you even have a conversation when it's so white hot or red hot, however you want to put it? When this issue is so hot, that's what your book is about, challenging conversations. How would you start a conversation on, on this issue of racism? Well, the first thing is, and I talk about in this relate section, and I actually refer to, you know, our friend Kevin DeYoung, he does a good job where you have to address in the heart if there's any prejudice in your heart. And I also reference to Benjamin Watson, you know, the great tight end NFL player who's a strong Christian, you know, who's again, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a black guy. And, and they address that you have to know that the moment there's a difference of someone's background or color of their skin, okay, there is going to be a form of prejudice there. That doesn't mean you're a racist though. So the first thing you don't want to do is you don't want to think that someone else is a racist or assume because of cancel culture saying you're racist for you to accept that. Don't accept that. But be open with a heart that's receiving the grace of God to say, God, 
is there any biasm in my heart? Another thing as you engage conversations, Frank, is you want to be able to facilitate an opportunity where you're not going to have a, a threatening environment. You want to have a non-threatening conversation. So if it's if it's heated on the Hispanic side or the African-American community side and you happen to be white, then I do believe, and I've experienced this growing up in Tucson, Arizona, coming you're, from you're, a Mexican family. Yeah, you're, that, you're Hispanic in, in, in your ethnicity, so yeah, you've experienced it, what? I've experienced where people have looked past me or made fun of me like, for example, in our field, Christian apologetics, there's not a lot of Hispanic people that are in apologetics, right? right. Overwhelming has not been the case. Now, more has come up through the years, praise God. Mm -hmm. But when I started to get into it, people are like, why do you want to do that? Don't you, don't you want to work in construction? Like, you know, those kind of statements. Mm -hmm. uh, or where I grew up, there was no opportunity to get education because there was mainly black people and, and Hispanic people that grew up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, very poor. And so, you know, there was there were less opportunities. Now, I don't hold that against anybody, but the reality is that is part of my life. That was part of my childhood. So I do think if someone's never experienced that, that you want to give weight to that again, without assuming that because it didn't happen to you, doesn't make you a racist though. So you want to make sure that you're going to be receptive to have a non-threatening conversation by letting that person of a different color, predominantly again, African-American or Hispanic to kind of share you their story life so you can kind of understand it a little bit better. And that's when you'll be able to establish some parameters and not make it political. That's another thing I'd say, Frank, yeah. don't let racism become a political topic. We were just saying that because you're a Republican. Knock it off. No, um, <laughs> no, but I think that that word you just used is an important word, your story. Tell me your story. I think that's a good way to start a conversation, right? How did Absolutely. you grow up? Where did you grow up? What kind of experiences have you had? Because I can understand why you feel a certain way if you've had certain experiences. There's no question that colors how we look at things. So you may want to say to them, tell me your story. I, I want to have a real conversation about racism. And so if you could just tell me your story and you listen 80, 90 percent of the time and let the other person talk, I think that's a good way of doing it. I also think you have here in the book here, Jason, again, we're talking to Jason Jimenez. His book is Challenging Conversations. You list a whole number of scriptures here about what does the Bible say about racism. And as a Christian, I think we need to emphasize that, that the only worldview that's going to ever correct racism is Christianity. Hinduism isn't going to correct it. They've got a caste system. Atheism isn't going to correct it. They don't have any external objective moral law anyway. Muslims aren't going to correct it because if you're not a Muslim, you're in a lower class. Doesn't regard, it doesn't matter what your race is. The only mm -hmm. worldview that's going to correct it is Christianity. So how can we... How can we advance the ball there uh, on that issue with uh, people we're talking to here, Jason? What should we be saying them from a, or saying to them from a biblical perspective as to how we deal with racism? Okay, so because of my upbringing and because again working with so many different backgrounds, ages, you know, multi generational, right in the church environment, Frank, uh, you come across a lot of these things, and so you start asking key questions, and like you said, again. Bring up their past, their background. If they don't want to talk about it, then maybe you got to circumvent it and do something a little bit different. But get to know their past. Remember, we're looking to Jesus, who is the only person, as you pointed out rightly, who can eliminate racial inequality, not necessarily a movement or an institution. And we want to pray that the walls of, of hostility and racism will come tumbling down. So one of the things that, that it's important to do when you're talking about a Christian worldview is, number one, don't assume. So ask the question to that individual, why is racism wrong? Number two, would you agree that there is, though, ultimately one human race? And I make the distinction in the book because I found, Frank, that in the church world, primarily, 
that people, they're just talking all over. There's like talking points. So they got it from something else and they're talking about racism and being so horrible and everyone's a racist. And I'm like, well, for, hold on. What is racism? Why is it wrong? Why is it bad? How would you cite that? How would you define that? Number two is, do you believe there's one human race that that's how God originally made it? And then to your point, a lot of people don't even know where to go in scripture about uh, the human race or racism in general to be able to argue that definitively through a, a biblical and theological understanding. And by the way, just so your listeners know, I've also found, again, you know, this whole 1619 project kind of stuff. And yeah. we maybe in a later date, we could talk about that because we, we did a lot of research. I have stuff that I couldn't even put in the book. So we're you know putting something together for something later. But even the origin of racism, people have history wrong most of the time, Frank. And that is a big issue that we're seeing today. And sadly, one, because the church doesn't talk about it because it's uncomfortable and they want to get an argument or two, they've taken a false narrative in the culture and they brought it into the church. They're telling people false things about racism in our country. Like what? We and, only and got that's what 30 I seconds. In the book. What's one of the false things? They just 30 seconds. Well, one of the false things is they just believe that from the very inception of our nation, we were built on racism white supremacists coming, you know, the, the, the Euro, uh, Caucasian person coming here, bringing their, their, uh, the superior Christianity religion and forcing black people to build this nation. That is a false narrative. Okay. And there's a lot more you can read in the book. We just started to scratch the surface, Jason. The book is called challenging conversations. I recommend everyone get it. Jason, what's your website quickly? StandStrongMinistries.org. StandStrongMinistries.org. Check him out there. He's a great speaker as well as a writer, so check him out there. Friends, again, I will be at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, Lord willing, this Sunday. Hope to see you there, and I hope to see you here next week. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.